Good morning, everybody. Uh, we're beginning a new series called Indebted this morning. My name is Steve Saccone. I'm one of the pastors here, if you don't know me. And I want to begin with a phrase that, that one of my friends says quite often. I hear him say this, and it's this phrase, it's all his. My wife and I, Sherry, have seen him live this phrase out in his life. And I know probably we all can relate being in the Bay Area. For those who live here, there are um, many pressures that sort of uh, cause us to try to always keep up. Ever feel that? And, and maybe many of you this morning have financial challenges that you feel day in and day out, anxieties, worries, those sorts of things. I know not too long ago, something happened to Sherry and I that everyone sort of dreads what happened to them. We bought a lemon of a car. Correction, lemon of a minivan. Which, you know, let me just say, when you buy a minivan, I know some of you have one, but, but, but when you buy one, you sort of cross over a threshold. And you know what I'm going to say, you're not cool anymore. I mean, you sort of assume that you were before, but you're definitely not then when you buy the minivan. I know minivan owners don't email me and complain because they are pretty awesome because I know we bought one. In fact, my son Hudson gets in the minivan for the first time, right? And he says the first line, he's like, this is like a spaceship, Dad. You <laughs> know, like, yeah, that, that's kind of true, you know? And I mean, who doesn't want a personal control center that you push a button, doors open and close, DVD, you know, comes down, right? There's a lot of cool features of at least a cool minivan, if you can call it that. But, um, but as we bought this minivan, we didn't know, of course, what we were buying, <laughs> And, and I know the, the, the world sort of thinks it's lame, but Hudson thought it was, you know, pretty awesome, thought we were rock stars because we bought this. But, but our sort of minivan heaven <laughs> quickly became a nightmare for the particular minivan we bought because it just seemed like thing after thing kept going wrong. It was like, seemed like every other, you know, week we were in the shop again or some weird noise was happening. We were just like, oh, no. And, uh, and there we were with this minivan. In fact, one time we were coming back from vacation, and all of a sudden we hear this huge bang inside the engine. Ever had this moment? It sounded like a firework to us. We were about three hours from home, so it wasn't good news, far from it. And so the four of us, what fun it was to climb into the back of a tow truck and drive an hour and a half to Vacaville, because we were about three hours from home, right? And then there we are. We get in this tiny little rental car. We pack all our vacation stuff in, and off we are in this tiny little car. Shout out to Ryan Ingram, because he's the one who said, hey, I'll take you back to go get that lemon of a minivan. He didn't really say that, but he took me back uh, a few days later to pick up this repaired lemon of a car. Can you tell I'm bitter about that car? <laughs> it was cursed. We eventually got rid of it. That's what we decided. We did fix it up as much as we could before we sold it, just in case you're, no, uh, in case you're wondering. But, um, but of course, that left us in this place. We needed another car. We were pretty desperate to need another car, and we wanted a very reliable car, as anyone would, but my wife with two little kids, especially, she was probably, you know, seemed like traumatized by all the time she was broken down on the side of the road with two little kids, so we were looking for a reliable car, but we were in this dilemma because what had happened is we had to take a chunk of our savings to buy the car, and then another chunk of our savings to repair the car, and so we weren't really in a place that we could actually get a car that we needed, and then the text message comes through from my good friend, and he heard about the situation, and he says to me in the text, my car is your car. You can have my car. I was going to buy a new one anyway. I mean, who gives their car away, first of all? 
And second of all, we didn't buy that second statement, right, that I was going to buy one anyway. But, you know, I appreciated him lying to me so that I didn't feel like a moocher completely, right? I think it's in the Bible. That's okay to do that. I don't know. But anyhow, <laughs> we, we first resisted. You know, we were like, oh, we don't want to sort of be the moocher friend that sort of takes the, you know, car. But then after we thought about it, discussed it, we were in this dilemma. We had prayed. We didn't know where God was going to bring, you know, where he was going to provide for us. And it was via this text message. So we felt like if we didn't take it at some point, we were resisting God's really answer to prayer. And there we were. And, and, and of course, we've hung out with a friend and interacted many times. People still wave uh, to us and think it's him, um, but we just wave back. We've had this car for about a year now, and, uh, and we thank him. We've thanked him often and so stand grateful even today, but he's never made us feel like we have to. But every time we thank him or it comes up, he says that little phrase, it's all his, it's all his. And that's truly what he believes at his core. It's truly what fuels and fosters his generosity. And that little phrase captures the essence of this new series that we're beginning, Indebted. Because you see, we don't give only because we're uniquely generous or because we feel we should give, we feel like giving. We, we give because it's all his anyways. That's the place from which we give. And, and some of you I know get this already and, and you really live this and, and it's really admirable. Others of you struggle with this at some level or another, and I put myself in that camp. I've grown over the years carrying this perspective with me, but there are certain moments in life, certain seasons in life even, that it's hard to really recognize and embrace that little phrase and that little truth and that little reality. It's all his when we look at our money and our stuff and our possessions. But here's the thing. You're not actually an owner of your stuff, you didn't enter the world with your stuff, and you're not going to leave this world with your stuff. You're what the Bible calls a steward or a manager of the resources that God has entrusted to you. And as a result, the calling, the invitation, the really command and instruction from the scriptures is that you would be wise with what God has given you. And what you do with your money, how you handle your money, how you use your money or don't use your money, it matters to God. And we see it over and over in the scriptures. I mean, most people, Christian or non-Christian of any religion, human beings, most people actually think to be generous or to give is a very good thing, even a necessary endeavor, no doubt. Yet I, I assume you can relate that, that we find ourselves in this struggle. We want to be generous, perhaps. We want to give, perhaps. Yet we have pressures, financial pressures, challenges, obstacles, things that hinder us. And, and really what it comes down to often is we have a hard time loosening our grip on our money and our stuff for a variety of reasons. And so the question before us that I put this morning is how is it, how is it possible to cultivate right, a spirit of generosity and embody a way of living where we give freely and we're not, we're not, um, we don't have a tight grip on our money and our stuff. I think that's possible. I think it's what the Bible calls us to. And I believe that, that most of us, if not all of us, we want to be generous, yet we find ourselves in this place where I know, namely, a universal sort of thing, we feel like we don't have enough. So we want to give, but don't give what we want to give. 
I read the survey this week as I'm preparing, and, um, and it said that in the Bay Area, that, that the average person says for someone to be well off, they have to be worth $6 million. And I was like, that's insane. What are we doing living here, right? <laughs> Just kidding, but not really. Anyway, um, there's this passage of Scripture I, I want to look closely at this morning where Paul addresses this idea of how people, how this group of people handle their money. He challenges us. He inspires us, I believe, right? how they handle their money, their possessions, and, and really gets to how do you develop an attitude or a heart or a perspective about your resources that God has entrusted to you. So here's the question that hangs over, over the scriptures and I think our lives, that amidst all the financial pressures and challenges, no matter how much you have, no matter how much you make or how little you have or make, the question is, how do we live as good stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us? And so 2 Corinthians chapter 8, to give you a little context, so Paul's writing to these, uh, these people, the Corinthians, and he's writing, in this case, about these other people that are called the Macedonians. And he's trying to inspire the Corinthians to give to the Jerusalem church, which was like the headquarters of the church. And he's telling the Corinthians that, um, that he's been moved, he's been inspired by these Macedonian people. Why? Well, you'll see in the text, but they were extremely poor. They were going through a severe trial, yet they embodied extreme and extravagant, not extreme, extravagant generosity. So basically, the context is Paul is bragging about the Macedonians to the Corinthians in order to inspire and encourage them to give and to live generous lives. That's where we pick up in the text, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse, first verse. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial that they're all going through, they're all in, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify, Paul says, that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. I mean, when was the last time you gave as much as you were able? Perhaps even went one step beyond that. When I read that and hear that, I'm convicted myself. And then he continues, verse 3, entirely on their own, listen to this, they urgently pleaded, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, for the privilege of giving. And Paul uses that word there that I think is one of the secrets of generous people. It's the word privilege. And this morning, what I want to offer you is four words that I believe are secrets to the generous person, four words that I believe we ought to grab onto and live out that we see in this text and we see in the Macedonian people. The first is privilege. I mean, you think about the Macedonians, you feel that as you read the text, you see that they want to give. They don't want someone else to give. They don't want someone who's more wealthy. They don't want someone who's more close to the situation. They want to seize the opportunity to further the mission of God. They deemed it a remarkable privilege. I mean, you read this phrase, they urgently pleaded. It's as if they were begging to give. Let me give. Let me be part of that. You get their spirit. They urgently pleaded for the privilege of giving. And I mean, how different is that 
than, than the world we live. I mean, you even think about um, nonprofits and churches and charities and different ministries, right? You, you see these kinds of things happen, and they, they give their all to try to raise money. They sell candy bars or Krispy Kreme donuts or do car washes that they might get you to write a pledge. I'm not knocking all those things, but, but you see this world. I mean, you might even, you know, come across somebody that asks for $100, and hey, if you send $100 in, we'll give you a prayer cloth and some water from the Red Sea. People have all kinds of tactics, right? Not really for that one, but, um, but how different is that? How different is that than what the Macedonians embodied? That though they were poor and though they were in a severe trial, they gave with extravagant generosity and they saw it as a great privilege. Then Paul says, verse 5, they exceeded our expectations. Yeah. They gave themselves, this is an interesting connection, they gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So what we see there is the root motivation. The root motivation of their actions and their attitudes Their generosity was cultivated by their commitment to Christ, by their daily walk to put God first. Because here's the truth that is extracted from that passage. If you don't cultivate a love for God, which is inseparably linked to a love for people, your generosity will be stifled. Their spirit of generosity was rooted in their passion for God and their passion and love for the people around them and for the things of God. So if privilege was the first word we see, the second word and really secret of a generous person is passion. Paul is telling the Corinthians, not only should we see giving as a privilege, but let's live to give. Let's do this with all our heart. Let's do it with passion and care about the things of God. Our passion... For God and what he cares about gets cultivated when we live in ongoing relationship with him. When we see, really see, and really embrace that he's been generous to us in love. When we see and understand that he has a passion for us first and foremost. And then our passion for him and the things that align with his heart begins to grow. That's where deep, extravagant generosity gets cultivated. What Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians and to us is that this kind of generosity ought to be normative among a tribe of followers of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, can you be generous? Absolutely. I've met many people along the way in life that are not Christians, but are generous. But if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, the Bible commands you To be generous with all, even extravagantly generous with all that God has entrusted to you. But here's the dilemma. I'm not convinced that the tribe of Jesus followers, I'm not just saying awakening, but beyond that. I'm not convinced that we really believe the words of Jesus in Acts chapter 20, where he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. I mean, do we really believe that? Because if we did, it would be revealed in our actions, our attitudes, our habits, what we do with our money, what we do with our stuff. So so I want to take a little pause for a moment, and I want you to self-assess this morning, okay? On a scale of 1 to 10, you got 1 being less generous, not generous, one might say, and 10 being extravagantly generous. Let's just say this, okay? So, So 10, you're not a 10, okay? If you're a 10, you're Jesus, 
okay? So no one, is Jesus in the room? Don't think so, okay? I mean, he is, but he's not. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, if, let's just say you can't be one either, because if you're one, we'll just say you're the devil. And if you're the devil, please leave right now, because we're, you know, in trouble. But anyhow, um, we're not really in trouble, because we have Jesus. Anyway, sorry, off track. Back to my point. So you're between a two and a nine, right? I mean, if you gave out Halloween candy, right, just put yourself a two, right? Just, you know, start there, okay? But, but this can be a little tricky because you can have a lot and give what some would say is a lot, but for you, it's not a lot. In other words, you can have a lot but not be generous and even give a lot in some sense and not be generous. And on the other hand, you cannot have very much and you can give what some might not deem very much, but to you, it's a lot. So you cannot have a lot and be generous. So this gets tricky about assessing your own generosity. So, so here's one way to think about it. Don't think about it in terms of how much you give, but think about it in terms of how much you keep for yourself. Is that fair? Right? So, so think about yourself and your own life. I mean, on one side of the spectrum, we'll go to the generous side way of assessing. Maybe you're someone that says, I've committed to tithing. Right? The biblical command is that you give your first fruits, your first tenth. Right? You tithe and you, and you say, yes, God, I'm going to trust you with this. Right? That, that, would, that would put you at least above a five, if not beyond that. Right? That's some level of generosity really there. It's obedience too. Or, or maybe you have a strategic and intentional way of budgeting and even giving, and so you systematically give. I mean, you, you might go higher, seven, eight on the generosity scale. Maybe you find yourself sacrificing regularly. Maybe your money, maybe other things of yours, you, you're freer with that stuff. That would put you higher on the generous. Or, or maybe you don't have much money, but you have time, and you see it that way, and you go, yeah, I serve a lot. I volunteer a lot. And that's a way of being generous, too. Perhaps that puts you into the seven or eight. On the other side of the spectrum... Maybe you're somebody who has a hard time giving. I've been there for sure. And at times still I'm there in different ways. And maybe you find yourself, I want to give, but you find yourself not actually stepping into that and giving, though you want to give. So you feel generous, but you don't act generous. That would put you lower on the scale. I don't know, three, four, something of that nature. And so... There's all different sort of places you could land. Maybe some in the room, you're, you're kind of upset we're even talking about this in church, right? We shouldn't talk about giving. Well, I disagree, <laughs> but uh, obviously, um, I think it's important, right? And this isn't, this isn't church-centric, right? This is, this is about, about your heart. This is about your life. This is about who you want to be. And if you're upset, we're even talking about this in church, perhaps there's a sensitivity that you ought to pay closer attention to. So just take a moment, that's just a sketch of things on that spectrum, and assess yourself, right? You can write it down or just have it in your head. How much do you keep? Would you be a two, three, four? Would you be a seven, eight, nine? How much do you keep? And as we continue through the rest of this message, my encouragement to you is to continue to assess your own generosity. Because when we look at the Macedonian people, right, they saw giving as a privilege. They embodied this passion for God, for the people around them, for the things of God. And that brings us to the third secret of generous people. And I'm going to step out of the core text for a second and look at another text that intersects, and then we'll go back. In Isaiah 32, 8. It's very clearly said. We discover something very important about generous people. It's the third secret. Generous people plan to do what is generous. They plan to do what is generous, and they stand firm in their generosity. 
In other words, generous people plan how they can give more. Stingy people plan how they can get more. Generous people plan and then stand firm so when things don't go your way, when something unexpected comes, they stand firm. They're faithful in their giving, even when they have less than they thought they were going to have, because they believe in, at the core of their being, it's all his. They believe that God will provide. They believe in a God of abundance, not a God of scarcity where there's a limited supply. They believe in the God of abundance whose provision is for them, and he's looking out for them. When our culture says consume, 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 when it says get more and get it now, which we're all influenced and affected by in some way or another, generous people decide to give. They plan to give despite any circumstances, despite anything going on around them. They choose to take a different, really countercultural path. And what Paul is saying in this text in Corinthians is that this is what the Macedonians are living out best he knows how. To describe it. And he wants that to inspire the Corinthians because here's the deal. I'm in this boat too, for sure. We get swept up by the values of our culture all around us. We get our perspectives, our attitudes, our even habits can get influenced by that, no doubt. And it takes immense intentionality to live counterculturally with your money, with your stuff, and a whole bunch of other things. But generous people, they set out with a plan. They make a commitment that no matter what, this is the life I'm going to live. This is the way I'm going to give. This is how generous I'm going to be. And they open themselves to God and say, God, I'm going to trust you to provide for me. I'm going to walk every step of the way with you in mind, your provision, your abundance. And they make a plan. And just for instance, a few examples of planning and getting to this verse, right? Generous people plan and then stand firm. Again, tithing, right? It's such an important part in, in, of the scriptures of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And, and I read there's different people that say different percentages, but this is about the middle of the road one, that only about 10% of followers of Jesus actually tithe, which to me is a bit disheartening. But, 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 but I think for, from my perspective, I would rather live on 90% with God's blessing than 100% without it. How about you? And I go, okay, I want to live it. I want to plan to tithe. In fact, in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, what we're told there is, is, is he says, test God. In other words, give, give the tithe to God and test him and see what he does. My encouragement to you, if you want to plan and get better at it, tithe for three months. See where God shows up. See how he provides, both tangibly and intangibly. Another way to plan is through your budget. I mean, this is basic foundation finances 101, perhaps, but but you can't be a good steward or manager if you don't monitor the inflow and the outflow of your money. So maybe the challenge this morning for some of you is become a better manager of your money. A third one is debt, right? The Bible speaks a lot about debt. And it tells us that um, that debt is not a good thing. I know there's good ways to leverage debt and those sort of things. But in general, in essence, the Bible says if you're in debt, strive to get out of debt. Plan to get out of debt. I know that's sometimes easier said than done. I love what the guy Dave Ramsey says who's like a financial guru. He says, line up all your debts, one through six, smallest to largest, and begin to pay off smallest first. Right until you're done paying off all the debt. Plan, make payments to get out of debt because debt holds you back, enslaves you. And one more here, save. 
Sounds simple, but sometimes hard to do. Even if it's a very small amount, you're doing what the scriptures say. You're planning, right, for generosity in that sense. Make a commitment to save. Because here's the thing. The most important reason to manage your money well, whether it's giving, saving, budgeting, right, all those sorts of things, is that you're not going to take it with you. It's all his anyways. And God wants you to steward that well. So if you're a follower of Christ, that's very important to God. It ought to be very important to you. All right, so not only do generous people see giving as a privilege, not only are they, are they motivated with a passion for God, putting him first, but they also plan, and then fourth and finally, the word perspective. The word perspective. This is about a gospel perspective, and our perspective always influences the way we live and the way we give. 2 Corinthians 8, back to the text, Paul says, see that you excel in the grace of giving. And what he's saying is there, it's just like the Macedonians who are poor but excelling in their grace of giving. A different way to translate that is be excellent in the ways that you give. The Macedonians had the perspective of, it is all his anyways. I've been entrusted to these things, and I want to give and live differently. Then he says in verse 8, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love. I mean, it's interesting to me there that there's not this sense of manipulation. They're not playing on emotion or pressure. He says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know, this is the core verse about perspective, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Truly generous people have their lives rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They see him, they see what he's done for us, and it shapes how they give and how they live. Jesus, who was rich in all his glory, became poor, stepped into humanity on our behalf so that we who were poor could become rich. And we only get tastes of all that richness. And there is so much more richness to come one day. But we're rich now. And often we don't live in it. Because here's the deal. Who we are changes when we embrace what Christ has done. It's the truth of the gospel. And I love this little text. If we jump back to Acts chapter 4, we see this group of believers who are, who are committed to one another, whose hearts and perspectives have been transformed by Christ. And here's what it says. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. You see God's spirit at work in their lives, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it in at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had a need." Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it all at the apostles' feet. I mean, think about that. What if our church embodied that? Where there was needs among us and we sought to meet one another's needs. 
where there was perhaps even poor among us, really needy among us, or around us in this community, and we said, we're going to be generous. We're going to sacrifice for the needy among us. And what if that was us? Because the generosity of Jesus' followers, I believe, it ought to be an example to the world around us that, quite frankly, doesn't look all that finely on religion and especially Christianity. And I just wonder sometimes that if we became generous people and if we became a generous church, we lived generous lives together, that we might have more opportunity to tell the people all around us of the generous God that we serve and love. The God who loved us so much that he gave his life for us, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. They would believe in that God because of our generosity. If you're not a Christian, you can certainly make a difference with your generosity. If you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus calls you to something way different. And it's hard, at times at least, to live a radically generous life To look at your time, your talents, your treasures, and say, God, it's all yours. It all belongs to you. Help me know what to do with it, and I'll trust you. See, that kind of perspective begins to change our essence. And when we start to develop that kind of perspective, you know what also changes? Our hearts. And what happens in that moment, right? I mean, money money has a way with our hearts almost like nothing else. And God knows, God knows how tightly we can cling to money and stuff. It's seen in the Bible. It's why Jesus taught more about money and possessions than almost anything else. He taught, we just went through a a series on sexuality. He talked 10 times more about money than sexuality. It's not to say sexuality isn't important, but it's to say that, that he, that God knows and the scriptures reveal that, that how our hearts get connected to our money. He understands our attitudes and our habits concerning money are concrete expressions of what a person treasures. And here's how Jesus said it. Matthew chapter 6. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is telling us that there's an inseparable link between our hearts and our money. Money and what you do with your money will always reveal what you treasure most, or one might say what you worship, even. And Jesus is clear. What we do with our money always reveals what's going on in our hearts, which also means this. What we do with our money reveals who we trust. Do we trust in something else for our security, our significance, our value or worth as human beings? Because here's the deal. Everyone in this room, I believe, everyone in this room, you have your heart set on something, maybe a set of things. That you say, if I have that, I'll feel significant. If I have that, I'll feel secure. If I have that, my worth as a person will be intact. It might be a career, it might be money, it might be possessions, it might be physical beauty, it might be your family. It could be a whole array of things, often good things. You've set your heart on something. You've put your trust or some degree of your trust in something else other than God. And Jesus tells us that whatever your soul's treasure is, whatever your soul has determined is that thing, there your heart is also. And you'll do anything to maintain it, to reclaim it, to buy it back, 
You'll cling to it so tightly. You'll give up everything for it if it comes to that. And then we think about Jesus who came to die for you. Why did he do that? Why did, he, why did he pay the penalty? Why did he take on the punishment that you deserve? The only answer is that you and me and all of humanity are his heart's treasure. You are his heart's treasure. I mean, you would die for your heart's treasure. You would do anything to purchase it or reclaim it. And here's what's so intriguing, that every other treasure in the world will make you die to get it or purchase it. But Jesus is the only treasure that died to purchase you. Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in light of all this that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, through what he did for you, might become rich. If you want to become free as a human being, but also free of your stuff and your money, the pathway, the pathway to extravagant generosity, a life of giving as a way of being, comes when you really see the gospel, when you really see what Jesus did on the cross, and you will let that permeate your entire being and shape who you are, change who you are. That's the path to freedom from your money, your possessions, and for that matter, anything your heart has set to be its treasure. Anything that you put your trust in other than God. And the freedom, the freedom that I believe we all long for happens when you really, really see why and for whom Jesus Christ died. Because you were the treasure of his heart. And it's then and only then that he will become the treasure of your heart. When you see him, when you see why, when you see what and whom he died for. See, when you really see that Jesus made you the treasure of his heart, and when he really becomes the treasure of your heart, you know what will happen? Suddenly money and stuff won't become your significance. He will be. Suddenly money and stuff won't become your security. He will be. Suddenly money and stuff won't be what you hang on to so tightly, what you find value in so much. He will be. See, Paul is telling us that if you want to be a giver, don't sit down with your calculator, sit down with the cross. Ponder it, reflect on it, embrace it, let let it embed itself into you, let it change you. And not only will our eternity be changed, but our very essence, our very person, our very character will be changed. Because giving is not simply something you do, Generous is who you are. As this Pastor Craig Rochelle says, giving is not just something you do. It is who you are. Generous is who you are. And if you truly understand the depths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will radically transform your perspective on all of life, but certainly about money and possessions. It will change your faith. It will change your speech. It will change your behavior. It will change your money. It will change your heart. It will change your relationships. And on and on it goes. This is so core to the life that we live, to living the right kind of life that God wants us to live. I'm going to invite the band back up. We're going to do one final song. And as they're coming up, I want to leave you this, with this one verse that intersects all of this. Je- Jesus offered these words related to what we've been talking about this morning that cut right to the heart. It's really simple. But he said this, whoever has been forgiven much 
will love much. What Jesus did at the cross, it was for you. Because you were his heart's treasure, so that you would not be headed for a Christless eternity. You are his treasure. You are the one he forgives. He has forgiven so much, so, so much, and loves so much. He gave his life on your behalf, and as a result, his invitation and his desire for us is that when we see the generosity of his life and his death and all that he is and all that he gave for us, his invitation to us is that our lives would be a response to that. And that we would say what my friend says, it's all his anyway. Let me live a generous life because of what you've done for me. Because again, giving is not simply something you do in a moment. Generous is who you are. And we want to be, and God wants us to be, a community that we become generous people. And our habits and our attitudes and our perspectives and our actions are revealed, are revealing of that. And will you bow your head for a moment? As this set next song begins to play, I don't know where this all lands with you this morning. Perhaps for some, you've never, you've never said yes to Jesus. And the idea of the cross and what he's done for you this morning, above everything else, is what lands into your soul. And I just want to say to you, At any moment you're ready, you can say yes to Jesus. You can say, Jesus, I see it. That you died on the cross for me. That you paid the penalty of my sin. That I don't deserve eternity with you. I don't deserve the richness of all that you offer me. But you became poor. So that I could become rich. And my encouragement to you, if that is you this morning, to say yes in your heart to Jesus, I will follow you, no turning back. It's a gospel that can change our life and our eternity.